0: Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I know I said we were done with horror, but we have one more horror episode to go for our, what was it, like 10-week horror celebration. But I'm very excited because I'm going to be talking to Jude S. Walco, who is a film producer, a director, a screenwriter, an actor. I mean, really, if you go look him up on IMDb, he's done pretty much anything you can think of and has tons of credits. But I'm going to be talking to him today about a novel he wrote, which is a version of the legend of Sleepy Hollow called *The Unhollowed Horseman*. It's a great novel, and I'm really excited to talk to him about it. He also has a 2018 award-winning film called *The Incantation*. Incantation. Incantation. Excuse me. Sorry. This <laughs> guy's <laughs> a little tongue-tied there. Uh, <laughs> which won the 2018 Eclipse Award for Best Direction among several other awards for the film. So. I'm really excited to talk to you today, Jude. So if you want to just introduce yourself and just give us a little bit of your background and then we'll get into talking about the novel.
1: Sure, Erin, and I want to thank you for uh, having me on your show. I'm super excited about it and uh, for taking the time out to read the novel and giving your feedback. And I'm very appreciative to everyone who does that. So thank you for that in advance. And you know, you said one more horror. So there's always room for one more horror. It's like to exactly. <laughs> Even though it's for November, you know, Christmas is creeping in, but we'll, <laughs> we'll still get one more horror in there for your fans. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically, you know, I've, I've made my bread and butter in the film business, as you mentioned. I've, I have almost 30 years in the film business because I started very young and kind of worked my way up. You know, I started as a PA, which is a production assistant, mm-hmm. doing the menial task of like, you know, getting coffee and answering phones and getting lunches and what have you, and sort of went started in the production office and went up all all the ranks from coordinating to production supervising to eventually producing um over that series of three decades and i've been an actor i started acting i graduated from the university of georgia drama department as an actor which was like more theater related as opposed to film i think they have a film department now but back then it was that so i have a background in front and behind the camera and have done everything, as you mentioned, you know, even grip work, like Mm -hmm. everything. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if you learn a little bit about all aspects, especially in something like filmmaking and probably in novel writing too, it's a very similar kind of creative thing. um, The more you know about it, of course, you're not going to be an expert in every little field, but the more you know about how all the cogs work, the more you have a bird's eye view and you can do a better job. And as a producer, you know, of course I'm, Sort of at the top tier of of managing people and expectations and personalities and budgets and schedules and all that kind of stuff. So it's good for me to know what those individuals have to go through mm-hmm. in order to make make the project work. So that's my background. And then now, cut to now, I'm almost fifty. I'm still in the film business. I, I work a lot. Producers Guild of America, SAG actor. But uh, you know this novel reared its head pun intended <laughs> uh, <laughs> i had i had written uh the script version of this actually yeah. quite a while ago um cuz i've always loved the story and i wanted to flesh it out into a novel and the pandemic showed up and i was like you know it's time for me to hunker down and finally get this out of my system cuz the story would not go away from me so it was something that i've always loved and so finally i i did it and it, it it took you know, a few months and and uh, several edits, and and here we are, and it's finally available. So I'm super happy about that. It's a labor of love, but I love the story.
0: Yeah, yeah and you can tell, you can tell it's a labor <laughs> of love when you're when you're reading it. Oh, you can tell. Ta- I mean, thank I think you. you can always tell that in a good piece of art. You can tell when the artist and the creator really loved what they were doing, and you can tell when they don't too. I think. So. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, True. yeah. So. I want to get into that because into the story and I do want to say on the onset if it does come up there are trigger warnings for some of the content in here um, mm-hmm. like sexual assault um, mm-hmm. is the big one that I'm going to give just on mm-hmm. the onset here just in case it comes up yeah. and we do end up talking about it just so our listeners are aware uh, but I know like you said you've always had a love for Sleepy Hollow I mean mm-hmm. you even have like a grave plot in I Skipping, do right?
1: I sure do yeah That's the, the really the really the really interesting thing is when I wrote this, so cut back to when I was first writing the script. So the, mm-hmm. the novel is, is based on the outline of the script, essentially. It's a fleshed out version of the script. It's almost 100. When I finished writing, it was 103,000 words. And the editor cut it down to 93,000. And I pushed it back up to 97. So we're somewhere. <laughs> so, but, but as novels go, it, you know, it's, it's pretty fleshed out. It's, it's got a lot a lot to say. But mm-hmm. um, but so cut back to I want to say it was 2009. I'm not really sure. I, around then, when when I was first writing the novel, and it was Halloween time, and you know mm-hmm. I've always loved classic literature. Um, I went to the seminary in these old gothic Harry Potter buildings all through uh, oh, wow. high school and some of college. So I, I my my creative mind has always went through this fantastical gothic type place, and I was I was feeling you know extremely ex- inspired in that particular Halloween. And I went um, and checked out all the Edgar Allan Poe, Washington Irving, um, mm-hmm. and a bunch of stuff like that. And I just sat by candlelight and and read these masterful works. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write this script. So, so I did, I did, I I wrote the script, and um, I didn't know where it was going because when I write. A lot of people have different ways to do it you know some people do the cue cards and they have Mm -hmm. 100 cue cards on a wall and they draw strings and they do plots and subplots and characters i am not that guy i don't do that i i just kind of go where whatever's whatever's next whatever's interesting because i'm a firm believer that when when someone takes their mind out of the story like the proverbial checking the watch either if it's a movie or a, a novel that you've lost the audience So I'm always trying to get to the next interesting thing. And if there's ever a time where there's a downtime or I'm just writing for the sake of writing, then I know I'm doing something wrong. So that's kind of my methodology. Like it it should be interesting. That's harder. That's way easier said than done for sure. Cause that's, that's probably the biggest task for, for an author of a screenplay or a novel, but keeping your audience engaged is super important. So that's kind of how I go. And we can get into character development a little bit, but but uh, basically, you know, in my head, I have all these characters, because I started as an actor um, and I was trained by a, some some really good seasoned actors like this guy named John Emmerman, who's a Shakespearean, a certified Shakespearean actor who taught me at the University of Georgia and stuff. But, Part of that was teaching the backstory of characters and imagining. So even if you're, even if I'm an extra, for say, per se, in a in a film, and they say you're going to be a truck driver, sit on this barstool and drink this beer. Well, for me, that guy has to have a story. Like, why is he at this bar? Why, you know, why did he choose this beer? What's his motivation? (laughs) To be a bit cliche, but you know, like I, I like to create backstory. So when it when it was time to write the novel. That was great because I had these characters that I knew were in it. And then each one of them had their own backstories and their own personalities. So the story at times took on wings of its own, because think about it like this. If you have five characters and you know their backstories and their personalities and you set them in a room together Mm -hmm. and something happens. So whatever that is, you can create whatever you want in your mind. You have five personalities. Let's say they're in the library. Someone walks in with a gun. Okay, how are those five people are going to react? One might run, one might get aggressive, you know, one might throw a book at them, one might jump under the table, whatever. So the so that's kind of how I started going through it. Now, as far as story arcs and, and, and all, all that um, sort of writing method stuff, I think part of that is from being trained and and being in the film business for thirty years, because I God knows I have read so many scripts over the years, mostly <laughs> bad, mostly bad ones.
0: <laughs> That's true. But, uh, there are more bad scripts sometimes. That unfortunately, you'll see, yeah. Sadly.
1: But, <laughs> exactly. But you know, studying people like Joseph Campbell and reading mm-hmm. things like "Don't Kill the Cat" and stuff like that also give you a good basis for story structure, which I think is is good and. And but uh, honestly, you know, if I'm to be honest, I think just being an audience member of, you know, 50 years of life for me, watching movies, reading books and seeing how the plot, how the master storytellers plots sort of come out Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, through osmosis, I guess, gives you (laughs) gives you (laughs) this uh, sort of idea of how your story should go. But a combination of all those things, uh, basically. That was a long-winded way of saying you know how I come about the story.
0: <laughs> I go <laughs> on. No, candidates. that was Sorry. no, that was really that was really really interesting. And so I'm I'm actually because because of what you said, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Um, I wanted to ask that about the character because your characters are so fleshed out in this story, and you can also tell from the writing that you definitely are a film person.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because
0: everything I could visualize the story really really well. Yeah. Uh, while reading it. And so I'm wondering, you know, for your characters, it, I know you mentioned it a little bit, but is there a particular process? Like, I know you when you're acting, you give yourself a backstory. Yeah. And so then did you give every single character, even if they were in like one scene in the book, did you give them a whole fleshed out backstory that we may never have seen on the page?
1: Yeah, I, I, I did that a lot. Maybe not every character, but almost all of them. Yeah, probably, Mm -hmm. you know, eight out of ten characters. I do give a very fleshed out backstory. And actually in the, you know, the longer, the director's cut, let's call it. (laughs) The director's cut. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) (laughs) There's, you know, there's probably some stories that I cut back uh, because, you know, the editor, the editor's job, just like in film, is to keep you from going off on tangents uh, and saying, okay, that's interesting, but you know, people are, you're going to lose people there. They don't care mm-hmm. about where this guy went to high school, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> but, but to answer your question, yeah, I do, because, um, I, I think it's important, um, to create the characters overall motivation and how they're going to react. So the more details, yeah. you know, about their life, like, like, were they, an, uh, did they experience abuse in their life? Are they educated? Are they ignorant? Are are, are they any of the, you know, homophobic, misogynist, Mm -hmm. sexist, whatever, racist, what have you, or, or are they free thinker intellectual people like what's their story? And then I give them events. And sometimes those events just come to me, you know, call it divine inspiration. I don't know. But sometimes I'll have a character and I'll say, okay, like, for example, in my story, Deputy Constance. Yeah. I always knew from the beginning, he had a military background. I can't tell you how I knew that. I don't know how I knew that, but he's a police officer. You know, he does things by the book. Uh, he tries to be a good person. He he prioritizes his task at hand. He's very methodical. So to me, that said Marine right away, like that's that describes how a lot of Marines I know. So I gave him a military background. So that's just like one small example. But then to make characters interesting, I'm, I'm a firm believer characters have to be good and bad. They can't just be one or the other. They can't be a villain or a hero. They have to be a little bit of, of both because that's the way humans are. We're all like that. You know, We all have flaws, but we all also have very shining moments where we do amazing things. Now, a character can lean one way or the other. They can do more good than bad or vice versa. But to me, a, a true multidimensional character has to have a little bit of everything. So when you read my book, as you did thank you for doing that (laughs) (laughs) um you know you know there's some characters in there that you're not quite sure like like you know there's a preacher who's like very stringent and and um sort of puritanical but Mm -hmm. also so when you first meet him you're kind of like i don't like this guy he's he's very like uh judgmental but at the end you're kind of like well, maybe he is. He's just thinking about the greater good. He really just wants people to do better for themselves. So that's you know that's an example. There's a character named Price, mm-hmm. after Vincent Price. I was that's I, I had a feeling I was going to ask you <laughs> yeah. that
0: the character named Poe too. You have a, you have like all sorts of different names like. I agree, but I thought yeah. it was cool you didn't do Vincent Price like because you have Vincent, yeah. but you didn't do Vincent Price exactly. Though, yeah. you had Vincent, and then yeah. Mr. Price, and then <laughs> yeah. Principal.
1: Uh, oh wait. Washing Washington <laughs> Irving's in there somewhere too. Yes, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, there are there are there's all those little guys in there. But um mm-hmm. but yeah, so uh price, so like Price, you know, he's he's sort of like helping these kids after school with after school work program and and trying to help the community, but he's also having an affair with the married woman and he has a predilection, you know, for young teenage girls, which you'd learn about, you know, he got in trouble for that way down the road. So like he again, he's he's not a he's not a character of high morals. He's a bit of both. Like you, at times you hate him at times you despise him at times you're like, you know, fuck this guy. Like he needs to go to jail. But then at other times you're like, wow, he's really trying to help these kids. And, 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 and and then my particular part of the story, that particular character is now trying to make a better life for himself and his community. So he's on the other side of that. So, and I think that's a very human thing because we all go through phases in our life where, we're doing good or evil. Um, it's just a normal thing. Like we're all just trying to survive. So hopefully, <laughs> so hopefully the horseman doesn't come for us, but until then, we we'll are trying to figure
0: it out. <laughs> no, that, that, <laughs> that is very, very, very true. Well, I wonder that, you know, because I think, and when we talked about Candyman earlier mm. on an earlier episode that we did back in September, I think, You know, like that legend and a lot of legends, like even Bloody Mary or anything like that, sometimes are born out of some kind of tragedy or trying to make sense of a tragedy. So how do you think, I mean, because I know your story deals a lot with tragedy, a lot with people not telling the truth, a lot with that kind of stuff. And so where does the Unhallowed Horseman fit into that, fit into the fact that, you know, this town is using this legend maybe to cover up for their own sins or their own indiscretions kind of
1: yeah totally well that's a that's a really interesting question and it's twofold because historically the novel the short story the legend of sleepy hollow by Mm -hmm. washington irving was part of the uh sketchbook by jeffrey cram which is irving's pseudonym pen name was written in eight it's published in 1820 so this is not too long after the american revolutionary war so part of that answer in historical context is i'm a firm believer that washington irving wrote this story sort of to cope with the horrors of the revolutionary war because it wasn't it wasn't that much later and in fact historically i sort of dip into this a little bit in the novel um but but historically the the birth of the headless horseman was there was a guy named john andre who uh i might be mixing up the two no there's two there's benedict arnold there's john andre John Andre was hung for being a traitor in in the town that's currently Sleepy Hollow. was formerly called Terrytown, and then an, another another guy got his head blown off with a cannon for being a traitor uh, because they had Hessians, which were the German soldiers fighting against the Americans. They were fighting with the British against the Americans. They were basically hired mercenaries, and that's sort of Washington Irving took all those together and made them. Uh, you know, he took bits and pieces of everything and put them in his story. In fact, Ichabod Crane is the name of a real general, but, but is the, the character is modeled after a, um, a teacher that, that a real life teacher that Washington Irving had known in his life. So all this stuff is documented historically. So the story itself was born out of trauma. Now cut to modern day trauma. Um, and yeah, that's a huge theme. In fact, in mm-hmm. fact, I would say probably the main theme of my novel is characters dealing with their trauma, especially the main character, Vincent, who's a young high school age, you know, junior or senior. He's been diagnosed through the years with ADHD and probably schizophrenia and and who knows what else. And he's sort of been swept under the rug. Yeah. His mom is really never around and You know she's she's not the ideal mother she never really wanted to be a mother so she just considers him as extra baggage kind of along her own personal journey so he doesn't get the uh attention he needs as a child and he sort of passed through doctor to doctor to doctor that just really no one cares about him there's no one in his life that cares about him so of Mm -hmm. course that's traumatizing so the the main thing that you know if you want to get it into the literal sense the main theme of of the novel is Vincent himself is trying to deal with his personal trauma and his mental illness and just being passed off and ignored. And for me, part of that, you know, I, I was born in 72. So, you know, I grew up in the eighties and nineties, and that's when people started diagnosing ADHD back then it was called ADD. And, you know, like it seemed to me like everyone I knew were, were they were just being diagnosed and given medication and these are young kids you know like teenage teenagers if they're lucky some younger and for me i was like this seems like normal to me like all every kid i know that's just being a kid you know not to say that adhd is not not a mental illness but i think a lot of people make misdiagnosed because it was so easy it was just like oh that that kid's you know, he's, uh, mm-hmm. he's running around with high energy. He's definitely got HD give him, give him a pharmaceutical. That'll, that'll calm him down. So that's kind of where Vincent's character is born out of that. Cause his, his mother abuses him mentally. You know, she has, she has sex with people that are not much older than him right in front of him. She's never around. She doesn't pri- prioritize him in any way. Um, mm-hmm. he's like I said, passed through doctor to doctor to doctor. When the opening scene with Vincent, he's got a medicine cabinet full of uh, prescription. He doesn't even know what he's supposed to take anymore. He just kind of juggles them and is like, yeah, I'll take three of these today and I should be fine. Because no one cares. Like he's he's thrown in the system and you could talk on that for, <laughs> you know, you could talk on the medical system and, and insurance. Yeah. And that that's a whole nother political topic. But essentially, yeah, it's, it's, it's him dealing with that trauma and then – in the, in the metaphorical sense, the sins of the father, the bigger picture thing you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something interesting. When I wrote the script, I had never been to the real life Sleepy Hollow at that point. Um, oh. I, I, it's really crazy. Like I didn't I didn't research it or anything other than seeing like, you know, the Tim Burton movie yeah. and the old cartoon, the Disney cartoons, like the Adventures of Ichabod and all that. That's all I knew. So I wrote the story. And then I visited it like three years later to the actual place, and I was shocked to realize that a lot of the stuff in the story were actually existing in real life. You know, like they, they have logos on their fire trucks and their cars. That the, the um, high school is called the Horsemen. You know, uh, like oh, all wow. this stuff, they've really embraced this. So, which plays in which plays in my in my story a lot, and and mm-hmm. just like the way I described the town, it's a beautiful New England town. Um, all that stuff. Is, is true to life. So it's kind of interesting how that town has embraced this anti-hero, this murderer. Mm-hmm. The, the the headless horseman is a serial killer, essentially. Yeah. He's lobbing off <laughs> people's heads. But yet, you know, you go to the town hall in Terrytown, and these, there's a big, you know, logo plastered on it with a headless horseman, which I think is awesome. I think that I think that's amazing. But but, but you know, think about you know any town USA, and they have like Jason Voorhees on their co- police cars. Like it, it, <laughs> it's really strange. So like uh, you know, th- are they embracing the trauma of the town? But in my story, yeah it's basically the fictional part of it is or maybe not you have to ask people that live there mm-hmm. is that it, it takes place during the Triduum of the Hall- hallows which is the three days a year when the dead can walk with the living so you know we call it a lot of different things halloween all hallows eve uh Samhain, all saints day the los mortos whatever you call it so that's where it takes place and in, in my story the sins of the ancestors start to culminate. So if you're looking at a very short 200-year period, it's it's a blip on the radar. But if you're looking on the great cosmos of all time, multiverse-type situation, in this instance, the universe says, you know what? It's time to do a cleansing. You know, we, we got to shake the fleas off the back. You know, we got to get rid of the parasites in this particular time, uh, in this particular town, it will culminate, the horsemen and kill off a bunch of people because they they've sinned and their fathers have sinned and their father's fathers have sinned. So throughout the story, you're learning the transgressions of each individual. They're sort of peppered in as you're going along. You learn, like I said, this one guy likes teenage girls, you know, and this, this other guy was not a great father figure and whatever. There's like all these little things peppered in to make you realize. and, And a lot of them are very normal, Let's call them sins, you know, like they're some of them are egregious, but some of them are just everyday, Mm -hmm. everyday things that all of us have experienced or know people that have. So, yeah, so it's a it's a great calling, you know, of 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 it's time to pay the piper and and Mm -hmm. let's just say the cosmos is like, well. You know the headless horseman. You guys seem to love the headless horseman, so here you go. It's time. It's time to pay the piper. I'll give you a headless horseman, and uh, you know you're gonna have one
0: hell of a Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to touch again back on on the mental illness and mental health, uh, which we have discussed a lot on this podcast. Oh, yeah. I've been very open about my own experience with that. I. Grew up in the 80s and 90s as well, and I know I had tons of friends that were hospitalized, tons of friends that were put on different meds. A lot of it was, um, you know, came across to me as it was a time when people didn't want to deal with kids. And it was yes. also a money thing. I mean, people, it was the insurance companies and the doctor, everybody making all this money. And then the second the money, the insurance ran out, everybody was cured. And then Ugh. most people were worse off than beforehand. It's so true. And so was, it was this. And so I was happy to see that. I, mean, I wasn't happy to see that, but I was happy to see it talked about because, and for you to yep. say that, because- I've said that a lot on here because I was one of those people that was in in a hospital. I was one of those people. And so I was misdiagnosed and I was put on like very heavy, heavy medication. Of course, I was also one of the people that was put on Prozac. Prozac was the other big thing. Oh yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah.
0: Big thing. And so it was, so I really appreciated that about the story, having that in there because I don't think people understand and especially younger people probably But or people that were never caught up in that system, that that really did happen. Yeah. So you kind of explained a little bit why you put that in there. But was there a particular reason that you were like, I want to make sure I include this and that with the character of Vincent, especially that you have? I mean, like just the description of his bathroom alone was almost (laughs) almost gag-inducing, and I mean that as a compliment. But it was, (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I can smell this bathroom. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I just, I just felt like this character, like so many people in real life, has been thrown away by society, and that, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought that was a super important theme. And you know, as as the story goes on, uh, you you get deeper inside of Vincent's head, and and he gets in more precarious situations, and uh, he start, he starts getting blamed for a lot of a lot of serious crimes, and is always in the wrong place at the wrong time, and. But at the same time, he's a he's a victim in the story, you know. Like like I I felt like you needed somebody who was super bu- vulnerable and who who society just really didn't give a shit about. And like you mentioned in your personal experience, and I and I did just from being alive during that time, that it's exactly what you said. You know, people threw through these kids away. It was like whatever was easy. Like nowadays, we could say okay our bad parenting skills are give somebody an iPad, give a kid an iPad yeah. and a bunch of apps and a TikTok and you know, you don't have to deal with them. It's the same kind of thing, except this was dealing with pharmaceutical drugs. So it was a yeah. lot more dangerous, you know, yeah. like, like the repercussions were severe and serious and, and, and lifelong probably. And I don't know, I just, it was something that, uh, you know, it was a sign of the time I grew up in. And I feel like, as you mentioned, not a lot of people talk about it it's like it never mm-hmm. happened you know like this whole generation of kids just again got thrown away by society like yeah we traumatized you we gave you pharmaceutical drugs when you were pre-teens but you know what that's life deal with it you know that's what i feel like so i i just felt it was important to have a character that was uh a realistic b representative and and c uh vulnerable you know like i I think it's important, like I said, to have multi-dimensional characters, and and uh I wanted Vincent in particular, who's the main character, mm-hmm. to to have other reasons to to go to his dark side rather than just being a pissed-off guy. Like I wanted to give him real-life issues, you know that some, you know, like some people, like nowadays, you know, ever since like Columbine, that's a whole nother thing, like school shootings, all that, like that that's the kind of character Vincent is like why do these kids do this we can blame whatever we want we can blame video games we can blame access to uh guns and all that stuff but mentally why did someone you know just last week someone in japan stabbed 10 people on a train Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and was sitting there smoking a cigarette afterwards like why why did why does that person get to that breaking point like there's way more to unpack there than just you know more than just um Pop culture. Like, there's got to be some trauma, trauma there, you know, some reason for them to snap like that. So that's, that's why Vincent, part of the reason Vincent had those issues, I think they're important to discuss.
0: Yeah, they're very important. I mean, we still have issues with the way we treat mental illness in this country, for sure. Yeah. I mean, for sure. It's a big, it's a big problem that we've discussed a lot and, and there are good, I mean, medication can help a lot. So it's not to say that medication can't, but when you are young, I yeah. think you have to be very careful with what you give people because you're still young and you're not fully developed. Yeah. So I think it can have lasting impact on your brain and your psyche, that, that kind yeah. of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. And it-
1: and also the kids in in, in my story, you know, they, they're at the point in their lives where they still believe in authority figures. So they trust what mm-hmm. the adults are telling them. And you have this these characters like I have Dr. Paulding, who's a pharmacist yeah. and a school counselor, and then another doctor, Dr. Dr. Tanini at the end. But who who who, by the way, another Easter egg, Dr. Paulding's first name is Conrad, because the guy that killed Michael Jackson with propofol that assisted that is is Conrad. Yeah. So that's why his name is Conrad Paulding, because he's a similar character, because he's basically poisoning these kids with pharmaceuticals. Um, Mm -hmm. But my point being is children, and we can call them children, even if they're 18, 19, 20, they're still children in their developing minds, trust adults, and adults are giving them uh, medication, often misdiagnosing them. And often for, uh, as I mentioned in the book, for their own means like money money insurance convenience those things which have nothing to do with the welfare of the kids and and i wanted to i wanted to shed light on that you know like i i i, I don't mm-hmm. think it's fair to these children so i had to put it out there
0: <laughs> yeah well no well thank you for doing that seriously i think it's something needs yeah. to be talked about more and in a better yeah. way than already does <laughs> <talked> about, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah so thank you thank you very yeah, of much and I want to know, personally, is there a character in the story that you relate to the most?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about that. And I guess it's hard It's hard to say. I, I'll answer that twofold. One, right off the top of my head, I would have to say uh, Deputy Constance. And the only reason is because uh, he has a teenage daughter. And I have a teenage daughter. My daughter's 18. <laughs> so I lent on my personal experiences, a lot of dealing with a teenager and how they go from that especially at that age you know in the story I think Reina his daughter who's yeah. a, another of, of the main character probably the main character in the strip she's actually the main character Vincent is not the main character mm. but in the book it's it sort of goes between the two but anyway she's like a junior in high school so she's 17 maybe 18 16 to 18 um, and my daughter's 18 but they're at that that vulnerable age where you, as a parent, you still see them as your baby, your young kid. You still remember holding them as a baby and smelling the top of their head, and like them crying about something very trivial, but to them it was like world ending. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they're teenagers. You know, and they barely give you the time of day, and you're lucky to get you know 15 minutes conversation <laughs> with them a day, you know. And they're stuck on the, in their iPod, iPads, or whatever. So that character, yeah, I fatherly stuff, and that was because he's struggling. He's based on when I originally wrote the script. You know, I'm an older generation, so I always saw Michael Keaton playing this character in the movie. But you know, now Michael Keaton's uh-huh. much older, so he probably couldn't. He's like probably 60 something, but I picture like the young, you know, Mr. Mom, Michael Keaton. So in my mind, this character is always like that's why his name is Michael, by the way. Another Easter egg. His name is Michael Constance. Ah, Because Michael Keaton. Because Michael Keaton. But um, but yeah, so like Mr. Mom, for those of you who know that movie with Michael Keaton, it's he's a single parent. He's struggling, like he's he he's he grew up in a world of, you know, maybe not totally toxic masculinity, but semi-toxic. He he was in the military. He he doesn't express his feelings well in the story. Now his wife is dead. He has a teenage daughter. Chaos is going into town. He's one of the only two cops in the whole town in a literal one-horse town. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's Halloween. It's their biggest time of year that they celebrate. Things are happening, very bad things. Uh, His daughter is threatened. There's somebody on the loose, you know. Like all this stuff is happening, and and it's a struggle for him. So yeah, as far as that, I can relate to just yeah. metaphorically the struggles of parenthood, and especially dealing with a, a daughter. I have a I have a son who's a little younger too, but that's way easier as a man <laughs> <laughs> De- dealing with the son. Um, but <laughs> the second part of that is a little bit of all of them, you know, are come from. From me, because you know, obviously, a writer writes about mm-hmm. their personal experience. So I might take a nugget of something I've experienced or something that's in my personal life, and of course, exaggerate it for effect or take it to extreme because of whatever the character is. You know, like like I said, I have got people in my stories who are uh, some people are uh, rapists and some people are pedophiles and some people are murderers and some people mm-hmm. committed suicide, and so I can't relate to those people. But there's a, but somewhere in there, there's a little nugget that, that's a part of me that, that was kind of the birth, the seed for those characters. So all of them, somewhere along the line, you know, came from me,
0: part of me. But,
1: but I guess Constance, that was a hard one, by the way. Like, I was thinking about it, like, who, (laughs) who do I relate to? (laughs) But yeah, then the daughter thing, I was like, oh, yeah, that definitely for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and and Constance, Constance really like grew on me throughout the, throughout the story. And I think what it was is Constance reminds me a little bit of my dad and some oh, like nice. the good sides of my dad. Yeah. Um, exactly. And my dad was also in the military and my oh. dad was also very, you know, he was someone that wanted to be a writer and wanted to write science fiction novels but he grew up in Chicago and in a very blue collar house that didn't, you didn't express your emotions. Like I remember going to my grandmother's funeral and you know, my grandmother's body is literally right there and no emotions from anybody, just a lot of laughing and talking. And it was a very weird experience because it's like my other side of my family is very emotional. So So it's these two sides. So, what I found interesting about him though is that he's also he's a really emotional character even though oh, he's yeah. coming up he's not he's very emotional oh yeah, yeah very much right on that surface and a lot of it also is I'm not going to give it away because I don't think it should be given away but it's also what he's holding on to from
1: something oh, yeah. that happened to him yeah exactly and and yeah and I am that guy too so I am super emotional I'm I don't know I, I don't know if I believe in astrology and all that but for those that <laughs> do I'm a cancer whatever that means I don't know <laughs> but but i've always been like super emotional i yeah. cry at movies you know mm-hmm. even like a good commercial could get me teared up you know like i'm that guy i wear my heart on my sleeve and my daughter's the same way who's also a cancer so maybe there is something to that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but uh yeah i i am totally that guy like like i and i have a similar story that's really interesting because the same thing happened at my grandmother's funeral mm. um in pennsylvania i'm from georgia but all my relatives are from Pennsylvania, and nobody was crying. And I just remember I was bawling, man. I was, you know, I was like doing the, the full yeah. body heave, crying and I'm looking around and no one else is crying. And I was like, I don't give a shit. Like somebody died. Like, I, this is sad, man. You know, like, but it's interesting you say that. Cause, uh, I'm, weird segue, but yeah. So I grew up Catholic and I went to the seminary for many years. I was going to be a priest. And like I mentioned in, earlier, I was in these big Gothic seminaries and mm-hmm. all that. Um, so that's interesting because growing up as a kid, we saw bodies all the time. Because I remember being an altar boy when I was like six years old at funerals and stuff. There was a funeral parlor right down the street from us, and they always, you know, you need altar boys to hold candles and do whatever crazy shit. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was weird. We were always around bodies, and there was no, never emotion. Like, I don't remember it was just a very, it's a very strange thing. You know, Catholics have wakes where, I don't know if yep. you're Catholic or if you're familiar, but.
0: That side of my family, my dad's side of the family is, which is, so it was, that was part of it was that was, I, cause yeah. I didn't know how long Catholic funerals were. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. It's, it's like,
1: yeah, it's like, the, yeah, they have a wake for like three yep. days where anyone could just come and view the body, you know, usually just, out there in open you know, or business hours at least, and and just people come, they just shuffle through and say their respects, which when you think about it is is kind of morbid. But like I, you know, I grew up with that, so it didn't it didn't really phase me at all, like that that sort of I mean maybe it did, maybe that's why I'm writing horror now, but <laughs> that's where it all stems from. But, yeah, that's where it all started. <laughs> but, but I feel like I'm kind of well adjusted. I don't know. <laughs>
0: I could be wrong about that. <laughs> That's funny. Well, some of the nicest people I've met write horror. So yeah, you know. Agreed. I agree. <laughs> you know i've i've written horror stuff before mm-hmm. too because i know when you have to write that it can take you to a dark place in your mind whether you yeah. want it to or not yeah so writing this story i mean there's a lot of darkness in this story Ooh. as well there's yeah. i mean of course there's violence because you're dealing with a serial killer yeah <laughs> so there's going to be yeah. violence yeah um but was there that there ever a part of you that was hard it was hard to shake that ever at a time or did that ever get to you or
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So many times, uh, so many times. Like I, I w- I just, I just uh, wrote an article about this uh, two days ago. But um, getting back to l- the multi dimension of of characters, and in my story, there's a lot of there's a lot of evil in some of my characters, um, mm-hmm. and some of it's extreme, uh, and some of that stuff was hard to write. Like I, I, like I am. I'm pretty liberal and I try not to offend anyone. And some of my characters are extremely offensive. You know, Mm -hmm. I I have, like I said, I got people uh, attempted rape. I got uh, people with pedophile, Mm -hmm. pedophilic tendencies. I got all kinds of bad things in my story. And there's some slurs in there, which I would never say as a person, you know, And, and it's just, it was hard to write those things. And I constantly feel myself like, which is why we had a discussion earlier about content warnings why i felt the need to put the content warning even though some big authors like Stephen King don't even use them and some people are against them but i, I always feel the need to be like hey these are characters in a story <laughs> you know they yeah. there's not good without evil there's not a hero without an anti-hero so you can't everything can't be you know butterflies and puppy dogs or else it's not an interesting mm-hmm. tale you have to show the, the bad side of people especially in a horror where there's going to be some um, repercussions to their actions and language and all that. So if if you don't show the bad side, then there's no reward if something happens to them, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, but that was, that was hard. It was difficult. And, and one of the things that I'd love to talk to you about is, you know, like one of my characters, Marissa is Vincent's mother. Yeah. And like I said earlier, she's very free spirited and she has a lot of, She's had a lot of men in her life and and she enjoys sex like the rest of us, but she's always been sort of had this scarlet letter painted on her by her family all the way through. So she just mm-hmm. embraced it. She's kind of like, well, if you're going to call me a slut and a whore, then I'll be a slut and a whore. That's fine. Like I I'm okay with it. I'm okay with myself, but I'm curious to ask you because of, of your opinion of your, your fan with, from a feminine perspective mm-hmm. of, of what you thought of her and or any or you know like we keep mentioning the uh, the attempted rape scene and stuff so i'd like to know how you felt about those particular characters but especially marissa because she's just that was hard for me because yeah i felt like i i kept you know i as the creator kept calling this character like lecherous or a whore or a slut or whatever and i would never say that mm-hmm. to a woman and i also i i would be offended if anyone said that about anyone you know so it was very hard for me to create this fine line of like how do i get people to have a disdain for this woman but also not offend half the population <laughs> you know it's it's <laughs> hard to do so i would i would yeah. love to hear your uh, take on those characters or thoughts.
0: yeah yeah sure no i you know, because I will say with Marissa, you know, because her being a single mom, I was raised by a single mom, basically. I mean, my father didn't come into my life until later on and all of that. Uh, my mom was nothing like this <laughs> <moment> <laughs> at all. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. That, no, we're even close to this. And I and there is sometimes there is that stigma on single mo- moms yeah. yep. where people do think that and they do call them names and stuff like that. But I think with this character, I didn't so much think of it as like where you were writing her and going, this is what a whore looks like. And this yes. is what not to be like as a woman. Yeah. For me, she was a very, very tragic character in that her whole life she had been told, this is what you are. By everybody, by her family, by everybody who encountered her. I mean, the sheriff is also yeah. treats her like crap.
1: Yeah. Everybody
0: treats her like an object. Which uh, a lot of women are treated that way, like an object. And I think what happened to her is she just kind of just broke and went, okay, fine, I'm going to be that way. And I I think deep down she wanted to be a good mother and she wanted to be a good person. But she didn't know how because she was so broken and so broken by society and so broken by abuse she had endured herself. And the way society painted her. And like you said, the scarlet letter, that would totally be her. Yep. So even though I really found her really hard to deal with when it came to Vincent, because I felt for Vincent so much. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I think, you know, you have a whole part where you are telling it sort of from her point of view. There's a whole yep. section. Yep. And then you kind of get to know a little bit more about her. Because I think up until that point, she was kind of. Like a figment, and you just saw her through Vincent's eyes. Yeah, true. Vincent's eyes, this is the person that is supposed to care for him and love him and doesn't appear to. But I think deep down she did. She just didn't know how to because she was beaten down. And that happens to women. It happens to men. It happens to a lot of people. I mean, like you said, people aren't black and white. It's just the way they are. People are complex. And if you have characters that are just really good angelic characters. That's boring, frankly. <laughs> <Officially>, <laughs> right. I think it's boring. And yeah, yeah. so I think with her, it's she's just a tragic, tragic character that I think if she had ever had an ounce of love, and if she had respect for herself, to me, she hates herself. She just yeah. despises herself. And so she's like, I'm just going to ruin myself, which is interesting to see with a woman and to see it a little bit more complex and to be able to see the side of her that isn't just a quote unquote whore or a quote unquote slut as people like to paint it because that's that's a thing you see a lot is women can't own their sexuality in media. It's very right, really yeah. hard. Because then they are called a slut or <laughs>
1: Which is not which <laughs> is not fair because we all like to have sex. It's like natural. Like why is it yes. why is it bad for a woman to be sexual? Like what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like
0: yeah, I, no, I, it's true. not
1: it's not fair at all. Like I, we're all the same. I feel so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then with with Raina, I I loved I loved her. I absolutely loved her. I worry about her where she is right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But I loved her, and the attempted uh, attempted assault scene; those are always very difficult, and sometimes they can be done in a very gratuitous male gaze way. Is the best way to put it. What I did, what I do, want to give you feedback for, because I don't know how much you want me to get into that. Because I don't want to no. spoil
1: a bunch of stuff. You can go as far down the rabbit hole as you can.
0: <laughs> but I, what I did appreciate is the realistic side of it, sadly, is when you are in a situation like that, it, you instantly, like, you even have her say in there that she felt shame, like, instantly once she sees, like, the sheriff and all this stuff, yep. she even talks about how she has a little bit of shame. And that's the way you feel, is you feel very much like um, this is my fault. Somehow this is my fault. Even if you logically know it's not. And it's also because frankly, the way you're treated is like, it's your fault. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So I did appreciate that that was in there. I did appreciate that it wasn't overly gratuitous where Mm. it didn't go all the way. I was preparing myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, Okay. It's probably going to go there. And then you pulled it back a little bit. So I did appreciate that. So in all honesty, I will, I will tell you, I did appreciate that a lot. And like I said, it's it was nice to be able to see, even though I hate that this is a fact, but to be able to see in there how she was feeling, which was very accurate and true, that yeah. she would be feeling that shame yeah. and not wanting to say anything. And whenever she tr- starts to try and say it, yeah. How she stops herself immediately. She, she
1: can't even bring herself to say mm-hmm. it because she knows she's going to be looked at as a wrongdoer in a situation mm-hmm. that she did nothing wrong. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. yeah.
1: society.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, I'm not not spoilers, but certain things that happened to certain people were kind of very cathartic. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I
0: will, I will just say sometimes
1: you you like to root for the horseman. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, very true. it's very
0: true. It's like yeah. you know, like Dexter. I love the show Dexter. Oh yeah, yeah. And exactly. there are some people you're like, okay, yeah, Dexter can go ahead and kill. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. exactly.
1: exactly. But yeah, but
0: but thank you for asking me about that because yeah, I, and I think you know I did appreciate, like I told you before we started, I did appreciate that there were content warnings. I mean, like I said, I watch horror all the time, and I watch a lot of dark stuff. So I'm used to seeing dark stuff, but it still is nice to, to see that, especially with whenever it comes to sexual assault, because it's nice to be prepared a little bit for that, I think. So, yeah, so I, I appreciate them being on there. I understand that, you know, I mean, sometimes I think with horror, it's a lot of people think you shouldn't have content warnings for that because it's horror. So you're in for it anyway, but I think (laughs) sometimes it depends. So, so I appreciate it. I'm,
1: I'm glad to hear that too because you know i i was on the fence about i always knew i was going to put content warnings but i was on the fence about how i felt about them uh just because you know i didn't want plot spoilers and mm-hmm. i thought you know does that ruin the experiences if you're, if you're prepared but hearing you say that now i'm like totally for them because if you are someone who is sensitive or worse yet has experienced something like that mm-hmm. you know it's It's only fair that you get a warning that there's something in there because uh I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to be to be surprised by something traumatic
0: like that. So that's and it didn't, to me, it didn't spoil anything. I just knew stuff like that was going to be in there, but it didn't spoil anything because you didn't say specifically where it was going right. to be <laughs> yeah, So yeah. <laughs> or what was going to happen. So yeah, yeah, it cool. didn't spoil anything for me. No, yep. no, not at all. Okay. So, cool. yeah. So Great thank idea. you. And thank you for asking about that. I do appreciate that. So, um, but I do want to know, because I know um, writing a screenplay is very different than writing a novel of course, because the screenplay is considered, you know, by some, the blueprint and not the final product. Whereas the store, the, a novel is going to be the final product. I mean, it might get adapted, that kind of stuff, but it's still the final product. So the process, I mean, you talked a little bit about your process already, but do you, after writing a novel and I know you've already written a lot of screenplays, is there one you might prefer or the, how does the process differ there and then is there one that you prefer or
1: I would have to say that I prefer having been through the experience now the novel and I'll tell you why Uh, there's a couple of reasons I look at I look at screenplay as sort of like the boisterous younger cousin of the novel because a novel is sort of more fleshed out erudite uh refined all those things and and a screenplay is only meant to grab your attention as quickly as it can because you have 90 minutes to tell your story which mm-hmm. is never enough time and it's visual medium so you have to things have to pop on screen or else people are going to be going for popcorn or whatever um taking restroom breaks so but as a result that story can never really get told in its full full essence it's really only a snippet of of even the best movies are only just a snapshot of 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 a bigger Mm -hmm. story which which is great for a certain thing like it's great if you're just trying to zone out it's great for being entertained it's great for escapism it's great for all those things but as far as being a storytelling a storyteller it's not going to outlive you it's not it's not the campfire story it's going to be passed down on the generation's even as great as Kubrick and Scorsese and all these people that we love are, you know, in a hundred years from now, they're not going to, we're not going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick. We're still going to be talking about Washington Irving. You know, I, I feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like a novel, a, a story of the written word stands on its own. And the reason I like it better is, is because you get to flesh out, you get to say all those things that, that, makes the story better particularly character development you know like if you didn't know marissa's background she would just be a one-dimensional character like you said you only see her through vince and size to a certain point and then you get her backstory and you're like oh okay well that's way more interesting now that i know about her past and all that stuff and also the the historical references like in my novel a lot of it's based on actual history or retelling of history which creates this whole atmosphere. The town of Sleepy Hollow is a character in and of itself, you know, and a lot of people don't know the backstory. They don't even know about the whole um, American revolutionary war aspect uh, and where, where the origins of the story were born. They may have never been there. Like I was never been there. So they don't know what the actual town is like. Maybe they've never been to new England and they don't know that whole atmosphere. So all those things in a novel, you have time, to put all those things in there, and like I said, there was originally a lot more <laughs> in there. <laughs> there was at least ten thousand words more in there that came out of my brain. But um, but yeah, I I enjoy the novel because now that I've written the novel version, I feel like the story has been told. I feel like it's out there. I feel like the characters are out there. The whole arc is out there. Now, of course, any like you said, anything can happen. It could be adapted. I could have a sequel. I could have a prequel. In fact, I'm already thinking about things that may happen in, in the next version if it gets popular but the story is complete like that that chapter that whole section of that story is out of out of my mind it's out in the world it can stand on its own whereas mm-hmm. a movie i feel like i i feel like it's just way too quick you know like you you mentioned my movie the incantation and you know it's just there's so much backstory and, and in a movie exposition is boring you know because yeah. you don't want to sit there and learn okay this character back <laughs> 10 years ago did this and they did this it's like I don't care I want to see somebody get shot like you know like whatever mm-hmm. but in a novel you do want to know those things because you're you've taken you've dedicated the time to sit down and read about these characters so you've already committed to knowing so the more uh, in-depth the story is the more layers it has. The more awesome it is, you know. I feel so definitely. As much as I love movies, and you know, I I've been on hundreds of movies uh, sets, and I I will probably be doing movies until I'm old and feeble in a wheelchair. But I I do like writing novels more. I would say it's just a it's just a cooler, more expressive, uh, a thing that's out there to the mm-hmm. public.
0: Yeah, and your screenplay might never ever be seen. So, yeah. but with the novel exactly it, it is seen really for yeah. It. yeah yeah and i know you said and i know you said it's might be adapted might not i know it was originally a screenplay so do you ever think of trying that though with this one trying to put it on screen
1: oh yeah totally um it's probably it's probably out of all my screenplays it's probably the most um commercial in that aspect like I feel mm-hmm. like any any studio can pick it up and go like yeah this will sell it's it's Halloween it's it's seasonal it's a bit of a slasher it's thriller. Yeah. it's it's horror it's all you know it's got a it's got a fan base sort of a click you know if you look at the numbers Halloween is into the billions of sales every year it goes up and up every year um, mm-hmm. and the Headless Horseman is becoming more iconic uh, as a character you know like back in the day you had Frankenstein and Wolfman and the Mummy and yeah. uh, all that, Dracula. Now the Headless Horseman is kind of in that fold. Like people accepted every Halloween as a as an iconic uh, Halloween character. So um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely it's just I never I, I I do so many other projects and and have so much stuff in development that I never personally have the time to like pitch my own projects because I'm working mm-hmm. on so many others. So if I had the time, I probably would sit down and pitch this and try to get it to studios but i haven't which is again back to your what you just said the novel i don't have to pitch to anybody you know it's out there like like <laughs> i just had to take the time to do it and um and refine it but yeah i think it's definitely in fact i think it's it, it has potential to be a franchise like i i think there's a lot of stories i want to tell even in the Unhallowed horseman world like like I want to get to know, like I said, in the original script, Raina is the main character. Like Mm -hmm. she's, it's this whole story revolves around her. Whereas in the novel, it's more Vincent. It's through Vincent's eyes, but Raina's, Raina's an interesting character and then her backstory and what happened to her and and her mother and all that stuff. And then what's happening in this town and the tritum of the hallows and the curse of the ancestors and all these things, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to unwrap there, which which I think could be a whole sort of, you know, universe, like a whole little folklore world building as HP Lovecraft does. You know, <laughs> <something like that.
0: laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I could, I could definitely see that. Yeah. So I, I want to know, I've asked people this all the time. How do you handle when you have a creative block When you have writer's block or any creative block come up because it happens to every single creator oh, yeah. part of the process. Yeah. How do you handle that?
1: I'll tell you what I do. I am a firm believer that creative things cannot be forced. I'm hundred percent. Me, I believe that hundred percent. So I feel like it's a bad idea if you go, I have to sit down and write a story today and it has to be 1500 words. I think that's not good because yeah, you can do it, sure. But it's not inspired. And that's, that's what uh, writer's block essentially is, is you're not inspired by anything. So for me personally, when that happens, uh, I take a break. Like I, I divorce myself from the project for a little bit. I try to get it out of my mind. I might go on a little day vacation somewhere go see a waterfall, get out in nature or whatever, but I don't force it. And in fact, when I was writing this, I, I often explain it when I first started. So I had the script as an outline. So I knew kind of mm-hmm. my story arc already, what the beat points I had to hit. And it just seems so daunting. And when I first started, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't writing that many words. I was writing maybe less than a thousand a day, which is not that much for a writer. And then I eventually got up to like twelve hundred fifteen hundred and and more like the scene with Marissa that you were talking about. Yeah. That was an awesome scene. And I wrote that all in one sitting because I was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, you know, divine inspiration. Washington Irving is like, ah! you know, so that was really that one particular was awesome. But in the beginning, it was like chipping away at an iceberg. Like I saw this gargantuan task. I knew where I had to be. I just didn't know how I was gonna get there. And I I assigned deadlines to myself and I was like, I'm gonna write every day, but I couldn't. You just can't because cause creativity doesn't work that way, like not good mm-hmm. creativity. So what I would do is I would just I would just take a break and then I would start to miss it, you know, because like like, it's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it's like when you watch a good series on Netflix and you haven't, mm-hmm. you know, binging it and then you've walked away for a couple of days and you're like, oh man, I wonder what's happening on the crown. Like I really need to catch up to that. <laughs> you know, it was like, like that sort of gnawing in the back of your head, like, man, I got to get back to this story. And when I, I found that when I took those breaks, so I probably averaged four to five days out of a seven day week instead of seven out of seven. Mm-hmm. Cause that's just impossible. I don't think it's possible. Maybe, I mean, people like Roald Dahl used to write every day, but Roald Dahl is Roald Dahl. I'm not Roald yeah. Dahl. I wish I was, but you know, there are people like that, of course, but I think your average writer is, is not like that and has mm-hmm. a lot of creative blocks. But I find that in, for me particular, particularly, it's a hard word to say, going <laughs> to opposite end of the spectrum. So like, if, for example, you know, like my film is horror. So like I said, if, I live in Thailand currently. So I can, there's all kinds of beautiful natural things here. So if I go to a waterfall or a mountaintop or a giant lake, I'm not thinking about horror at all. I'm not thinking about, you know, anything, anything horror related or even seasonal Halloween. I'm out in green nature. It's the furthest thing from my mind. It's sort of like a reset button on a computer. And then Mm -hmm. when I come back, I find that I've missed it. Like, Oh, this is my baby. Like I'm ready to jump back in, you know, and then, (laughs) and then the creative juices start start flowing again. But to prevent writer's block, for me personally, like I find that um, when I'm writing both scripts and novel, music helps a lot for me personally. I, I know a lot of writers, like, mm-hmm. I don't listen to things with words because I don't want to start singing along and then I take <laughs> my mind out. <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I might have something like on low, you know, like I'm a big, like Danny Elfman, or Hans Zimmer, or Vivaldi—you know, just like mm-hmm. classical, or, or um, you know, what they call on YouTube, epic, epic songs, or, or stuff that's just like inspiring. And I might have those on very subtly, just to like keep the keep the brain churning. But um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question because everyone deals with it. Like, what do you do when you get, hit, hit a creative block?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a hard thing because everybody comes. To it it's just something that happens and i do agree with that like if you push yourself like if you're like no i'm gonna write anyway no matter what i'm gonna do this no matter what it's number one it probably won't be as good as what you could do if you were to step back and take a break yep and step away from it and i think that that is that thing of where you have that pressure on yourself of if i'm not doing this 24 7 am I really a creative person? If I'm not doing this 24 seven, am I an imposter? It's that imposter syndrome. Yeah, totally. Totally. And so I think that, that, that plays a part in it. And I think it's interesting about music, because as I've said a lot of times on this podcast, music, I could give up almost if I was asked to, I wouldn't want to, but I could give up everything else except for music. Music to me is just everything. It inspires everything I've ever written, everything I ever do. It's just like, I mean, I can hear a song and I'll literally like, See like a whole outline of a story in my head. Yeah,
1: <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. That's Music. so true. Is so
0: powerful. It's oh, like... you're
1: so so right about that. So yeah. true. Yeah. Another thing that's inspiring to mm-hmm. me if I'm if I'm feeling at a low point at, at a non-creative point is I think about every single classic you've ever read. Name an author: Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, whoever, whoever you mm-hmm. like. At some point, that person. Were sitting alone most likely in a room with themselves churning out this work of art so yeah. you're a you're a colleague in a sense you're in the same boat they were and these are great classics that have inspired generations so mm-hmm. whenever you're feeling down and like oh this is hard to get through or whatever just know that you're you're really not alone you're part of you're part of a a long-standing tradition like like I mentioned, Roald Dahl, he's one of my favorite writers. You know, he had he had a writer's hut. Even when he was famous at his house in Great Missenden, he, he built a writer's hut away from his house so that he didn't have the distraction of family. And he would go there and write. Like, they've recreated it in his museum. I actually went to it in, in, um, in the UK. But, you know, he had his like, little uh, armchair in his desk, and he just sat there and he wrote by himself who's one of the most prolific authors ever and some of the greatest stories ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just like you and me, and I'm sure there were days when he sat there and I was like, man, I just, I don't feel like fucking writing today. Like I have nothing, yes. you know, like I'm sure he had those moments too. So I, I try to, you know, like when I wrote the incantation script, I was writing, for some reason I was writing it at night, that particular one, maybe because it's a, it, it's a dark evil story that, deals with like witchcraft and occultism and devils and stuff but I don't know why but I always wrote at night and it was weird because my kids were younger at that time mm-hmm. and so they would wake up and go to school and life would happen and you know my wife would be doing her thing all normal life would happen and and I would like sleep in the day then I would get up you know at night and I'd have like a little light because they were all sleeping you know like two in the morning and I'd be sitting here writing and uh there's just a a A weird thing but for that particular project that's when creativity struck for me yeah and uh you know it was just like i don't know i i like the process of writing and i think i try to think that everyone goes through the same challenges no matter what you're writing so i think that helps me when i think about other people like you're not alone kind of thing you know it it helps Mm -hmm. it helps with the creative and in the end the other cool thing to me sorry to go off on a tangent is (laughs) is that it's so cool to me that it doesn't cost anything to create written word you know like like anyone with a mouth and a brain and a keyboard or a pen Mm -hmm. can create a tangible product and i think that's amazing like you can go on amazon now and buy something that came out of my brain like that's that's crazy like i you know like like anybody can do that. Anybody can write a poem or a prose or even a novel or a script. And it just, uh, you've, you've created out of thin air to, to me, that's Mm -hmm. really cool. You know, like, you know, you, if you wanted to build a house that costs takes a lot of time and money and materials, but if you want to write a novel, just sit down with your computer and start (laughs) writing. (laughs) I think that's amazing.
0: No, that's, that's a very good way to look at it because I think sometimes, writing can feel like a very lonely, lonely, lonely process. Oh,
1: <laughs> so. very lonely, yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's yeah. that's a nice way to kind of look at it, too. And especially if you look at some of your heroes and you, oh, I'm sure they struggled with this imposter syndrome, too. So. Oh, yeah, I'm sure yeah. they did. Yeah. Well, I want to know, who inspires you? I mean, I know you're a big Tim Burton fan and, of course, Washington Irving and all that stuff, but, uh, but who does inspire you?
1: Yeah, I mean – yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I mean, cin- cinematically, yeah, Tim Burton, for me, like, like, I've always felt a parallel with him in my, in my personal creativity. Like, I felt like if I was ever a mainstream director, writer mm. or director that my stuff would be similar to Tim Burton's. Like if I had all the resources he had and I had gone to Cal arts and all that stuff like he did. And I just, I just love his aesthetic. I love his storytelling. So cinematically him. And then just also personally, I'm a huge stop motion animation fan, huge fan of Ray Harry housing, Tim Burton, Henry Selleck, like Pixar, like going down the line of all that stuff. And the stop motion community, is a very tight knit community because it's such a specialized skill set to have. So they all know each other because they've all worked on the same movies, including, you know, the classic, what we considered classics uh, like Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline going all the way through to today, Frank and Weenie and Corpse Bride and Paranormal and all that stuff. So the Tim Burton world and the stop motion world kind of run parallel in that, in that same, those same circles. And I've had, I've been blessed to not only meet some of those people, meet Tim Burton a couple of times, but also work with some of some of the best stop motion people, like the Kyoto Brothers, and they're actually mentioned in my book as well. Um, so those those people inspire me. That the people, you know, like Tim Burton, uh, the Kyoto Brothers, Richard Elfman, who did the Forbidden Zone. These people did these projects when they weren't cool, or there there was no um, If you look look at The Forbidden Zone by Richard Elfman and Danny Elfman's brother, who's also a good friend of mine, or you look at the Kyoto Brothers Killer Clowns from Outer Space, they did those movies. (laughs) I know, that's what I'm saying. They did those movies like on their credit cards, you know, like they both. (laughs) Richard Elfman said he had to sell his house to finish that film and it took him like a decade. Um, And same with the Kyoto Brothers. I know them personally Mm -hmm. and they like, they gave you know beg borrowed steal asked their friends whatever same thing i did with incantation that that was a credit card movie like i literally made it me and my friend my business partner dan Campbell, and my company blue falcon we did it with our credit cards like in france we were you know like like i admire those people because despite the odds they don't care about they're not doing it necessarily for commercial success yeah that would be great we would all love to have a billboard on uh, sunset strip in LA and get an Oscar nom and all that stuff. But we're not going into these projects thinking that's the end all. We're not even thinking they're going to be successful. In fact, we know most times more than not, we're going to lose a lot of money on the deal, but to have that drive to, to have to put that story out there, no matter what, no matter cost and personal cost too. like, you know, like I said, I was, I was living in an opposite time of my family not even saying goodbye to my kids to go to school to finish that script just because sacrificing our, our, our's <laughs> grazie artists, you know, like yeah. it, it had to be done. And I just admired, I admire that from people, those, those people are my biggest heroes. If you look at my, at the end of my book, I think I have mm-hmm. an author's note and I mention a lot of those people. Um, but then as far as like influences, you know, I, I was very lucky to have a really good education. Like I said, I was in the seminary and in, in, in my very uh, developmental stage, like high school years. And, and I had a great education, sort of like the the dead poet society, that movie, yeah. remember that movie, it was a similar education to that, wherein, you know, we were reading classic literature as and as a sophomore in high school. And I was like going to Broadway and, and uh, like concerts and stuff that, you know, a boy from Georgia would never have experienced any of those things. But because I was in the seminary and they took education very seriously, I had all those things, which opened up the doors to classic literature for me, which is, which is, you know, classic English literature is the birth, uh, the forefather, if you will, of American literature, which is Washington Irving and James Fenimore Cooper and all those guys. But it started with, you know, everybody in England, like, you know, Charles Dickens and all those yeah. people. So. Those influences, classic English literature segueing into classic American literature, huge influences on me. Again, in a hundred years from now, no one's going to remember uh, even The Godfather, but they will remember Moby Dick still. There'll be people reading, you know, these stories, uh, War, War and Peace and whatever, like you name a classic, it's going to be around forever. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. everything for me, basic, basising. Classic literature—it's the best for me.
0: Are there any upcoming film or, or television projects you can talk about, or you want to talk about, or? Yeah, on? actually, um, something
1: different for me. I, I mentioned I have a company called Blue Falcon Productions. Mm-hmm. We're doing a project right now that's a docu series called Sons of Fallujah, and it's—I've never done um, a docu series or documentary, but it's my my business partner Dan was a Marine in Fallujah in 2000, I want to say 2006 or 2008. I, I mixed those up for some reason. But anyway, where there was a pivotal point that happened called the tribal awakening where basically the U.S. was in there, Al-Qaeda was in there, and there were the people in the middle, the real people, the Iraqis that live there, the everyday mm-hmm. people that didn't want to have anything to do with Al-Qaeda or the U.S., right? So it's a very yeah. human story that people, you know, either – Usually in the media, it's either, oh, these are terrorists and they're all evil, or it's, hey, America's number one, freedom, liberty, bald eagle, go fuck yourself. Like it's one of the, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like both extremes. (laughs) But everybody forgets that there were people living there, that there there was this, this was their home. These tribes have been around since even before the Muslim religion was around. That's how old they are, thousands of years old. And then these two warring factions came in and tore up their hometowns. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our story is, the real life interviews testimonials from the Marines who were there from the Iraqis who were there on both sides and going up, up and down the chain from the people on the ground, holding weapons at each other, all the way up to commanding officers, tribal leaders, the whole thing. So we're currently interviewing those people. We've got a lot. Uh, and we're going to do a series on that just because there's a humanitarian aspect that, uh, People don't know about like I said, it's in the media. It's just one extreme or, or the other It's either you either you hate them or you love them. You know, you're on one side or the other either either America's the white devil or uh, and, or they're the infidels the infidels or you know, like or or um, Everyone's a terrorist an Arab is a terrorist like that's mm-hmm. not true. You know, like these are human beings they and So there's a lot of human stories to be told there, you know, there's there was there was a woman that that accidentally got shot by Marines who was an Arab woman, and they used all their assets to medevac her and and keep her alive. And they never were they were in fact instructed not to do that, like that that's the enemy. But they did it, and that was a changing point. But that's just one example. There's dozens of stories like that where both sides were yeah. were helping each other just because they're humans. And uh, so that's an interesting project that. Uh, is way far from anything I've ever done, but it needs to be told, you know, like I'm, I'm all Mm -hmm. scripted. My 98% of my career is scripted feature films um, with, with now some series stuff because of the advent of Netflix and all that, but mostly scripted. So this is as far away from, you know, and of course I love horror and all that. And this is like (laughs) completely opposite, but uh, I think it's going to be a really killer project. So look, look for that coming pretty soon.
0: No, that sounds great because I do think that is true. People forget about the human beings involved in that. And, and yeah, I mean, it's because you think it's over there. So it's not, it doesn't affect me. So I'm not going to think about it or people just like to put a lot of labels and yeah. So very, very, very true.
1: Yeah. And a parallel with the novel, like, like, um, you know, we were talking about the ADHD and misdiagnosis and the sort of children thrown away by society. Well, on the back end, you have the soldiers and this that are thrown away by society, like that whole PTSD thing thing and like Mm -hmm. soldiers coming back. And a lot of them are homeless now, a lot of veterans Mm -hmm. and they don't have proper medical care and all that whole side of it too. It's sort of like disposable, you know, they, they use them when they're young, when they're in good fighting position, they they put their lives on the line and then they come back and they can't even deal with their families. Like they just can't relate. You know, when you've seen someone blown up in an IED bomb, mm-hmm. it's hard to go home and, and eat casserole with your wife. Like it's a whole another world that you've been traumatized into. So that's also touched upon in our, uh, cause, cause again, it's just real. It's just real everyday testimonials. There's no, there's no script, nothing scripted. It's all just people on camera telling their sides of the story. So
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's,
1: it's important stuff too, that we forget about. Like we just, we see, you know, CNN news bites or whatever. That's all we see. Like, Oh.
0: Yeah. We, yeah. You don't think of the cost of it and the, the, the person behind it, the real living flesh and blood person behind it. You don't really, and it's true. I remember we went a group of us, this was a few years ago, went downtown here. And I live in Colorado and went downtown Denver and we were passing out like you know, stockings to the homeless and stuff. And which is just a small little tiny thing you can do. I mean, that's not really even yeah, yeah. a big thing, but I remember uh, there was um, a vet who was like, you know, you've done more for me with this little tiny thing than,
1: mm-hmm. than exactly. my country has yeah. done for me, no, which true. is so sad because it it's is. like,
0: you know, it's like, okay, we're, we're all, we want to support people going yeah. over there and fighting for us until they come back here and they're done fighting yeah. for us. And that's like, <laughs> yeah, because we forget about the the human consequences of stuff and and we forget about human beings. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Jude. I think this has been a great conversation. It's been Uh, great talking to you. I agree.
1: Thank you for having me. I've loved
0: it. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much. Seriously. I really appreciate you coming on. So if you want to just close out with where everyone can find you and sure. everything like that and where they can find your novel as well.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, so the novel is The Unhallowed Horseman and you can find it. Amazon's the easiest place to find it if you look under books and just type the title, The Unhallowed Horseman, you'll see it. Um, but it's I'm all over social media. I have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, and then for me personally, Jude S. Walco, if you put me in a search bar, you'll get a million things come up. Uh, but I also have... <laughs> Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook that I'm pretty active on. But feel free to drop me a line, uh, anybody listening on any of my social media if you have a question or, or whatever. And I will say this too. One thing that will really help me as a as an indie author is if anyone does read it, if you guys can go and rate it, either the big ones are Amazon or Goodreads because a lot of people go there for their mm-hmm. you know information. So if you can rate it or even have the time to do a short review. I would love that. That 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 helps a lot to promote the book. So um, check it out. I think you're going to enjoy it. If you're a fan of uh, Halloween or Sleepy Hollow, headless horseman mm-hmm. horror, Washington Irving classic literature, all of the above, any of that, you're going to you're going to enjoy the ride, I think.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really well written. I do say it's, it's really it's uh, some of the lines are like very poetic is what I had written down in one of my oh, notes. This nice. is very poetic. So yeah, that's really good. So thank you. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one on Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. On TikTok, we're still trying to learn the TikTok thing. I feel so old. TikTok confuses me so much. But (laughs) I think me and the other Erin are getting kind of good at it. I don't know. But you can follow us there at (laughs) It's a Fandom Thing Pod. Uh, But on our next episode, we're going to be talking about conventions because conventions are back. So you're able to go to conventions now. So that'll be a fun conversation. (laughs) Talking a lot about that. So until next time remember it's a fandom thing black lives matter and stop asian hate okay round 2 name something that's not boring a laundry ooh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey
1: podcast listener, do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season 9. This season the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single,